welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey there, just me. You're about to listen to another installment of our summer series, which is going to record the entire executive summary report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Obviously, there is a content warning while engaging with this material, and we ask that you please take care. You're going to hear some different voices. Some are new, and some you've heard before. And we give a heartfelt thank you so much to everyone who rallied to record this project with us. Be sure to check the description for relevant links and page numbers, so you can actively reference the report while you're listening if need be. And without any further ado we present to you the Executive Summary Report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Residential schools are a tragic part of Canada's history, but they cannot simply be consigned to history. The legacy from the schools and the political and legal policies and mechanisms surrounding their history continue to this day. This is reflected in the significant educational, income, health, and social disparities between Aboriginal people and other Canadians. It is reflected in the intense racism some people harbor against Aboriginal people, and in the systemic and other forms of discrimination Aboriginal people regularly experience in this country. It is reflected, too, in the critically endangered status of most Aboriginal languages. Current conditions such as the disproportionate apprehension of Aboriginal children by child welfare agencies and the disproportionate imprisonment and victimization of Aboriginal people can be explained in part as a result or legacy of the way that Aboriginal children were treated in residential schools and were denied an environment of positive parenting, worthy community leaders, and a positive sense of identity and self-worth. The schools could be brutal places, as Joseph Martin LaRocque, a former student at the Beauville Residential School in Saskatchewan, told the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Residential school was a very harsh environment. They, they treated us like criminals. You, you had to. It's like a prison. But we were small kids and we didn't understand. We didn't understand harsh discipline. We understood love from our parents, but the harsh discipline was hard to take. And that happened to everybody, not only me. The impacts of the legacy of residential schools have not ended with those who attended the schools. They affected the survivors' partners, their children, their grandchildren, their extended families, and their communities. Children who were abused in the schools sometimes went on to abuse others. Many students who spoke to the commission said they developed addictions as a means of coping. Students who were treated and punished like prisoners in the schools often graduated to real prisons. For many, the path from residential school to prison was a short one. Mervyn Morasti was a student at the Beauville Residential School. I ran away from school. I'd go out. I'd walk around town and steal whatever I could steal. I started stealing cars. I got caught at 15. I ended up in jail. From that point of 15 years old till the year 2000, I got sentenced to 25 years altogether. 25 years altogether. And I don't know what I was fighting, what I was trying to do. I didn't care who I stole from. I drank. I started drinking when I was about 17, 18... I drank, I stole, I hardly worked. I used the system, the welfare system, and plus I stole and I drank. Children exposed to strict and regimented discipline in the schools sometimes found it difficult to become loving parents. Janine Paul Dimitrakopoulos' mother was placed in the Shubenacadie Residential School in Nova Scotia at a very early age. 
Paul Dimitrakopoulos told the commission that knowing this and what the school was like helped her understand how she grew up because my mom never really showed us love when we were kids coming up. When I was hurt or cried, she was never there to console you or to hug you. If I hurt myself, she would never give me a hug and tell me it would be okay. I didn't understand why. Alma Scott of Winnipeg told the commission that as a direct result of those residential schools because I was a dysfunctional mother, I spent over 20 years of my life stuck in a bottle in an addiction where I didn't want to feel any emotions, so I numbed out with drugs and with alcohol. That's how I raised my children. That's what my children saw, and that's what I saw. The commission is convinced that genuine reconciliation will not be possible until the complex legacy of the schools is understood, acknowledged, and addressed. Parliament and the Supreme Court have recognized that the legacy of residential schools should be considered when sentencing Aboriginal offenders. Although those have been important measures, they have not been sufficient to address the grossly disproportionate imprisonment of Aboriginal people, which continues to grow, in part because of the lack of adequate funding and support for culturally appropriate alternatives to imprisonment. Most First Nations child welfare agencies have been established, but the disproportionate apprehension of Aboriginal children also continues to grow. In part, this has happened because of a lack of adequate funding for culturally appropriate supports that would allow children to remain safely with their families, or to allow children to be placed in foster or adoptive environments that are culturally appropriate and capable of giving children a sense of identity, self-respect, and self-worth. Many of the individual and collective harms have not yet been redressed, even after the negotiated out-of-court settlement of the residential school litigation in 2006, and Canada's apology in 2008. In fact, some of the damages done by residential schools to Aboriginal families, languages, education, and health may be perpetuated and even worsened as a result of current governmental policies. New policies can easily be based on a lack of understanding of Aboriginal people, similar to that which motivated the schools. For example, a current child welfare and health policies that fail to take into account the importance of community in raising children can result in inappropriate decision-making. We must learn from the failure of the schools in order to ensure that the mistakes of the past are not repeated in the future. Despite the challenges and failings in responding to the legacy of residential schools, and a concern that the federal government may have lost a sense of urgency on these issues since the 2006 Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement and Canada's apology in 2008, the Commission is nonetheless cautiously optimistic that promising pathways to constructive reforms do exist. These could include new strategies based on respect for Aboriginal self-determination and for Canada's obligations under treaties, and Canada's endorsement of the new United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. In its February 2012 interim report, the Commission observed that the United Nations Declaration provides a valuable framework for working towards ongoing reconciliation between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians. We continue to encourage all governments and the legal parties to the settlement agreement to use it as such a framework. The Government of Canada initially refused to adopt the Declaration. When it finally did endorse the Declaration, it did not fully embrace its principles, saying that it is a non-legally binding document that does not reflect customary international law nor change Canadian laws. The Commission is convinced that a refusal to respect the rights and remedies in the Declaration will serve to further aggravate the legacy of residential schools and will constitute a barrier to progress towards reconciliation. Child Welfare Residential schools, as acknowledged by the Prime Minister's own admission in his 2008 official apology from Canada, were an attack on Aboriginal children and families. They were based on racist attitudes that considered Aboriginal families as being frequently unfit to care for their children. 
By removing children from their communities and by subjecting them to strict discipline, religious indoctrination, and a regimented life more akin to life in prison than a family, residential schools often harmed the subsequent ability of the students to be caring parents. In many ways, the schools were more of a child welfare system than an educational one. A survey in 1953 suggested that of 10,112 students then in residential schools, 4,313 were either orphans or from what were described as broken homes. From the 1940s onwards, residential schools increasingly served as orphanages and child welfare facilities. By 1960, the federal government estimated that 50% of the children in residential schools were there for child welfare reasons. The residential school experience was followed by the 60s scoop, the wide-scale national apprehension of Aboriginal children by child welfare agencies. Child welfare authorities removed thousands of Aboriginal children from their families and communities and placed them in non-Aboriginal homes without taking steps to preserve their culture and identity. Children were placed in homes across Canada, in the United States, and even overseas. This practice actually extended well beyond the 1960s until at least the mid to late 1980s. Today, the effects of the residential school experience in the 60s scoop have adversely affected parenting skills and the success of many Aboriginal families. These factors, combined with the prejudicial attitudes toward Aboriginal parenting skills and a tendency to see Aboriginal poverty as a symptom of neglect rather than as a consequence of failed government policies, have resulted in grossly disproportionate rates of child apprehension among Aboriginal people. A 2011 Statistics Canada study found that 14,225, or 3.6% of all First Nations children aged 14 and under, were in foster care, compared with 15,345, or 0.3% of non-Aboriginal children. As Old Crow Chief Norma Cossey said at the Northern National Event in Inuvik, the doors are closed at the residential schools, but the foster homes are still existing, and our children are still being taken away. The Commission agrees. Canada's child welfare system has simply continued the assimilation that the residential school system started. Canada's child welfare crisis has not gone unnoticed in the international community. In 2012, the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child expressed to Canada its concern about the frequent removal of children in Canada from families as a first resort in cases of neglect, financial hardship, or disability. In its report, the committee singled out the frequency with which Aboriginal children are placed outside their communities. Noting that Canada had failed to act on its own Auditor General's findings of inequitable child welfare funding, the committee concluded that urgent measures were needed to address the discriminatory overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in out-of-care home. Disturbing data. The First Nations component of the Canadian Incident Study of Reported Child Abuse and Neglect, designed by the Public Health Agency of Canada and its provincial, academic, and agency partners, confirmed that Aboriginal children in the geographic area studied are also significantly overrepresented as subjects of child maltreatment investigations. For every 1,000 First Nations children, there are 140.6 child maltreatment-related investigations, as compared with 33.5 investigations for non-Aboriginal children. The rate of investigations involving First Nations children was 4.2 times the rate of non-Aboriginal investigations. The study also found that in the population under review, those allegations were more likely to be substantiated in the cases of First Nations children. This was true for all categories of maltreatment, but the difference was most extreme for investigations of neglect. Investigations of First Nations families for neglect were substantiated at a rate eight times greater than for the non-Aboriginal population. 
An analysis of the Canadian Incident Study confirmed that poverty and social stressors are major factors in child welfare investigations involving Aboriginal families. Aboriginal parents were more likely to experience a host of serious risk factors, including domestic violence, alcohol abuse, lack of social supports, drug or solvent abuse, and a history of living in foster care or group homes. The direct connection between Aboriginal poverty and high child welfare apprehensions has been known for half a century, yet Aboriginal children are still taken away from their parents because their parents are poor. Researchers suggest that clear standards are needed to guide apprehensions, and that the provision of family supports and prevention service might be a better response to concerns than removal of the child. There must be a commitment to reducing the number of Aboriginal children in care and developing supports to keep families together. Child welfare workers must bring to their work an understanding of Aboriginal culture, as well as an understanding of the lasting harms caused by residential schools. Calls to Action 1. We call upon the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to commit to reducing the number of Aboriginal children in care by monitoring and assessing neglect investigations, providing adequate resources to enable Aboriginal communities and child welfare organizations to keep Aboriginal families together where it is safe to do so, and to keep children in culturally appropriate environments, regardless of where they reside. Ensuring that social workers and others who conduct child welfare investigations are properly educated and trained about the history and impacts of residential schools. Ensuring that social workers and others who conduct child welfare investigations are properly educated and trained about the potential for Aboriginal communities and families to provide more appropriate solutions to family hearing. Requiring that all child welfare decision makers consider the impact of residential school experience on children and their caregivers. Better research and data are also required in order to monitor and develop strategies to reduce the overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in care. Call to action number two. We call upon the federal government in collaboration with the provinces and territories to prepare and publish annual reports on the number of Aboriginal children, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis who are in care compared with non-Aboriginal children, as well as the reasons for apprehension, the total spending on preventative and care services by child welfare agencies, and the effectiveness of various interventions. Death and Abuse of Children in Care The child welfare system apprehends too many Aboriginal children, while at the same time failing to protect them. The Commission heard many stories of mistreatment in foster homes. One woman told us that her foster parents physically and sexually abused her. Her Aboriginal identity was constantly disparaged. She said, My foster parents were adamant about Aboriginal culture being less than human, living as dirty bush people, eating rats. It made me not want to be one of those people. And for years, I didn't know how to be proud of who I was because I didn't know who I was. Linda Clark was placed in a foster home with three other children. In that foster home, there was a pedophile, and I don't know what was happening to anybody else, but I became his target. The mother used to always send me to do errands with him, and so, every time, he would make me do things to him, and then he would give me candy. Also in that home, there was no hugging of us foster kids or anything like that, and I carried a great guilt for many, many years, because sometimes I didn't want to resist it. I just, I knew it was very bad. Sometimes child welfare placements end in tragedy. Where there are province-specific statistics available, the findings suggest that in some parts of the country, Aboriginal children who come into contact with child welfare authorities are significantly more likely to die. Research in Alberta indicated that 78% of children who have died in foster care between 1999 and mid-2013 were Aboriginal. 
Since Aboriginal children, a minority of the overall population, represent 59% of children in care in Alberta, the rate of Aboriginal child deaths in care is even more disproportionate than the apprehension rate. Of the 74 recorded deaths of Aboriginal children in care, 13 were due to accidents, 12 children committed suicide, and 10 children were the victims of homicide. 45 of these Aboriginal children died while in the care of a provincial child welfare agency, and 29 died in the care of an on-reserve First Nations child and family service agency. Delivery of Child Welfare Services There are over 300 child welfare agencies in Canada operating under provincial and territorial jurisdiction. In addition, Canada provides funding to over 100 agencies delivering child and family services to First Nation families under the framework of provincial legislation. In 2010 to 2011, there were 9,241 First Nations children outside the parental home and in the care of these First Nations child and family services agencies, representing 5.5% of on-reserve children. A few larger Canadian cities, such as Toronto and Vancouver, also have Aboriginal child and family service agencies. In Manitoba, there is also an agency serving Métis families. There are, however, no Aboriginally controlled agencies in the three Northern Territories. Child welfare services to Aboriginal families there are provided through the same government agencies that serve all children. In two out of three territories, Aboriginal people make up a majority of the members in their legislatures and cabinets. Although the federal government acknowledges its responsibility for child welfare services to First Nations families, Métis communities are not well served. The Commission believes that adequately funded Métis-specific child and family services must be made available to Métis children and families. The Government of Canada should not let unresolved jurisdictional disputes stand in the way of the acceptance of such responsibilities. Similarly, the Commission believes the Government of Canada should ensure the development of adequately resourced Inuit child welfare services in the North and in urban centres such as Ottawa and Montreal that have a significant Inuit population. Lack of adequate funding Proof of the effectiveness of First Nations child and family services agencies is still preliminary, but anecdotal evidence and case studies suggest that First Nation agencies are more effective than non-Aboriginal agencies in providing service to First Nation clients. But it is troubling that the ability of First Nations child and family services agencies to develop culturally appropriate services has been constrained by limited funding. Of 12 First Nations agencies surveyed in 2005, 83.4% reported that they did not receive adequate funds to ensure culturally appropriate services. It is clear that the way in which Canada has funded Aboriginal child welfare has hampered First Nations agencies in providing effective services. This shortfall continues to inflict pain on Aboriginal families and communities, and contributes to the continuing overrepresentation of Aboriginal children in foster care. Jurisdictional Disputes Jurisdictional responsibility for child welfare is intensely contested. Historically, the federal government and provincial and territorial governments have tried to shift the responsibility for Aboriginal child services from one level of government to another. The federal position is that responsibility for child and family services lies solely within the jurisdiction of the provinces and territories. Canada contends that the federal government is responsible for funding only on reserve services. In contrast, the provinces maintain that the federal government has constitutional responsibility for Indians, and argue that Ottawa has offloaded that responsibility to the provinces to provide services to an increasingly urban, non-reserve population. 
The result is that there are often disputes over which level of government or department is responsible for paying costs. The repercussions of these disputes can be serious, with Aboriginal children paying the highest price, in particular, children with complex developmental, mental health, and physical health issues. In 2007, the House of Commons unanimously supported the adoption of Jordan's Principle, named in honour of a Manitoba infant born with complex medical needs who spent all of his short life in hospital, caught up in the federal-provincial jurisdictional dispute over responsibility for funding his care. According to Jordan's Principle, the government department that is first contacted for a service available only off-reserve must pay for it and later pursue reimbursement for the expenses. But Jordan's Principle was not passed into law, Rather, it is a statement of principle by the Canadian Parliament. Many intergovernmental cases of disputed responsibility continue. Call to action number three. We call upon all levels of government to fully implement Jordan's principle. Improving outcomes for children. Although there is now considerable Aboriginal control of child welfare services, Aboriginal agencies still struggle for adequate funding. There is a need for more funding and research into preventative services that can support Aboriginal families. At the same time, many of the conditions that result in disproportionate Aboriginal involvement in the child welfare system are related to more intractable legacies of residential schools, including poverty, addictions, and domestic and sexual violence. We believe that in order to redress the legacy of residential schools and to move towards more respectful and healthy relationships, the Government of Canada, in meaningful consultation with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities, must recognize and address the broader context of the child welfare crisis. This includes matters of child poverty, housing, water, sanitation, food security, family violence, addictions, and educational inequities. Effective child welfare reform will require both measurable targets and timelines for reducing the numbers and proportion of Aboriginal children in care, greater consistency in the system's regulatory framework, and the acknowledgement of the central role of Aboriginal agencies. Canada has rejected First Nations' demands to operate services in accordance with traditional laws and traditional justice systems. By contrast, in the United States, tribal courts have played an important role in the child welfare system since 1978. These courts have exclusive jurisdiction over custody proceedings involving Native American children living on a reservation. They may also play a role in Native American child custody cases where the child lives outside a reservation. While not perfect, the American system has led to greater tribal authority over the placement of Indigenous children, as well as the expansion of family preservation programs. Indigenous children are still removed from their homes in disproportionately high numbers, but the rate of overrepresentation has decreased. The rate of placement with non-Indigenous caregivers has also decreased. Call to action number four. We call upon the federal government to enact Aboriginal child welfare legislation that establishes national standards for Aboriginal child apprehension and custody in cases includes principles that affirm the right of Aboriginal governments to establish and maintain their own child welfare agencies, require all child welfare agencies and courts to take the residential school legacy into account in their decision making, establish as an important priority a requirement that placements of Aboriginal children into temporary and permanent care be culturally appropriate. There is also a human dimension to improving outcomes for Aboriginal children. The intergenerational impact of the residential school experience has left some families without strong role models for parenting. An investment in culturally appropriate programs in Aboriginal communities has the potential to improve parenting skills and enable more children to grow up safely in their own families and communities. Call to action number five. We call upon the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to develop culturally appropriate parenting programs for Aboriginal families. Education. 
The residential school system failed as an education system. It was based on racist assumptions about the intellectual and cultural inferiority of Aboriginal people, the belief that Aboriginal children were incapable of attaining anything more than a rudimentary elementary level or vocational education. Consequently, for most of the system's history, the majority of students never progressed beyond elementary school. The government and church officials who operated the residential schools ignored the positive emphasis that the treaties and many Aboriginal families placed on education. Instead, they created dangerous and frightening institutions that provided little learning. In their mission to civilize and Christianize, the school staff relied on corporal punishment to discipline their students. That punishment often crossed the line into physical abuse. Although it is employed much less frequently now, corporal punishment is still legally permissible in schools and elsewhere under Canadian law. Section 43 of the Criminal Code says, Every schoolteacher, parent, or person standing in the place of a parent is justified in using force by way of correction toward a pupil or child, as the case may be, who is under his care if the force does not exceed what is reasonable under the circumstances. The Commission believes that corporal punishment is a relic of a discredited past and has no place in Canadian schools or homes. Call to action number six. We call upon the Government of Canada to repeal Section 43 of the Criminal Code of Canada. The objectives of the schools were to strip away Aboriginal children's identities and assimilate them into Western Christian society. Doris Young, who attended the Elkhorn Residential School in Manitoba, described the experience as a systemic attack on her identity as a Cree person. Those schools were a war on Aboriginal children, and they took away our identity. First of all, they gave us numbers. We had no names. We were numbers, and they cut our hair. They took away our clothes and gave us clothes. We all looked alike. Our hair was all the same cut us into bangs and straight short, straight hair up to our ears. They took away our moccasins and gave us shoes. I was just a baby. I didn't actually wear shoes. We wore moccasins. And so our identity was immediately taken away when we entered those schools. In addition to the emotional and psychological damage they inflicted, one of the most far-reaching and devastating legacies of residential schools has been their impact on the educational and economic success of Aboriginal people. The lack of role models and mentors, insufficient funds for the schools, inadequate teachers, and unsuitable curricula generally taught in a foreign language, and sometimes by teachers who were not proficient in the language of instruction, have all contributed to dismal success rates for the Aboriginal education. These conditions were compounded for many students by the challenges of trying to learn in environments rendered traumatic by homesickness, hunger, fear, abuse, and institutionalized helplessness. The Commission has heard many examples of students who attended residential school for eight or more years, but left with nothing more than grade three achievement, and sometimes without even the ability to read. According to Indian Affairs annual reports, in the 1950s, only half of each year's enrollment got to grade six. Poor educational achievement has led to chronic unemployment or underemployment, poverty, poor housing, substance abuse, family violence, and ill health that many former students of the schools have suffered as adults. Although educational success rates are slowly improving, Aboriginal Canadians still have dramatically lower educational and economic achievements than other Canadians. Education is a fundamental human and Aboriginal right, guaranteed in treaties, in international law, and in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In particular, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples contains a powerful statement on the right to education under community control. The Declaration states, Indigenous peoples have the right to establish and control their educational systems and institutions, providing educations in their own languages in a manner appropriate to their cultural methods of teaching and learning. The Commission believes that fulfilling the promise of the Declaration will be key to overcoming the legacy of residential schools. Education and the Income Gap 
It is not surprising that, faced with terrible conditions and mostly ineffective teaching, many students left school as soon as they could. A 2010 study of Aboriginal parents and children living off reserves found that the high school completion rate is lower for former residential school students, 28%, than for those who did not attend, 36%. Only 7% of parents who attended residential schools have obtained a university degree, compared with 10% for those Aboriginal parents who had never attended those institutions. Although secondary school graduation rates for all Aboriginal people have improved since the closure of the schools, considerable gaps remain when compared with the rates for the non-Aboriginal population. For example, according to the 2006 census, 34% of Aboriginal adults have not graduated from high school, compared with only 15% of their non-Aboriginal counterparts. In the 2011 census, these numbers improved slightly, with 29% of Aboriginal people not graduating from high school, compared with 12% of the non-Aboriginal population. It is significant that the lowest levels of educational success are in those communities with the highest percentages of descendants of residential school survivors, First Nations peoples living on reserve, and Inuit. Both groups have a high school completion rate of 41% or less. The statistics for First Nations people living off reserves and for Métis are somewhat better. More than 60% of First Nations people living off reserves and 65% to 75% of Métis have graduated from high school, although these results are still below the national average. Lower educational attainment for the children of survivors has severely limited their employment and earning potential, just as it did for their parents. Aboriginal people have lower median after-tax income, are more likely to experience unemployment, and are more likely to collect unemployment insurance and social assistance benefits. This situation is true for all Aboriginal groups, with some variation. In 2009, the Métis unemployment rate for persons aged 25 to 54 was 9.4%, while the non-Aboriginal rate was 7%. In 2006, the Inuit unemployment rate was 19%. The true rates of unemployment for people living on reserves are difficult to ascertain because of limited data collection. Aboriginal people also have incomes well below their non-Aboriginal counterparts. Median income for Aboriginal people in 2006 was 30% lower than the median income for non-Aboriginal workers, $18,962 versus $27,097, respectively. The gap narrows when Aboriginal people obtain a university degree, which they do at a far lower rate. Not surprisingly, the child poverty rate for Aboriginal children is also very high, 40% compared with 17% for all children in Canada. The income gap is pervasive. Non-Aboriginal Canadians earn more than Aboriginal workers no matter whether they work on reserves, off reserves, or in urban, rural, or remote locations. The proportion of Aboriginal adults below the poverty line, regardless of age and gender, is much higher than that of non-Aboriginal adults, with differences ranging from 7.8% for adult men aged 65 or older to 22.5% for adult women aged 65 or older. The depth of poverty is also much greater, with Aboriginal people having an average income that falls further below the poverty line on average than that of non-Aboriginal adults, and their poverty is more likely to have persisted for a significant period of time. Call to action number seven. We call upon the federal government to develop with Aboriginal groups a joint strategy to eliminate educational and employment gaps between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Canadians. Funding inequities. Present day, Aboriginal education in Canada is made up of a mix of models. The federal government funds schools on reserves with the actual operation of those schools often delegated to the local First Nation. Aboriginal children who do not live on reserves are educated through the provincial or territorial school systems. In addition, there are a few education systems completely run and managed by First Nations through self-government and other types of intergovernmental agreements. 
There are approximately 72,000 students attending 518 First Nations schools. Despite those numbers, many children still must leave their homes and families behind if they wish to obtain a higher education, even at the high school level. Since 1973, the Government of Canada has claimed that it is committed to devolving control of education to First Nations people. However, the interpretation of Indian control offered by the Government of Canada bears little resemblance to the vision of First Nations. The government's version of the term has entailed the devolution of federal education programs to First Nations without the benefit of adequate funding or statutory authority. Indeed, when devolution began, it was designed to occur without any additional expense. This meant that former Indian Affairs-operated schools, which were already substandard compared with provincial norms, were handed over to the First Nation bands to run, but without giving the bands the means to operate them effectively. As a result, the curriculum for the majority of First Nation schools is virtually identical to that found in the provincial and territorial schools. This approach is not significantly different from the approach during the residential school era, when Indigenous communities had no say in the content and language of their children's schooling. The funding formula for First Nation schools was last updated in 1996 and does not take into account the range of basic and contemporary education components needed to deliver a good quality education in the 21st century, such as information and communication technologies, sports and recreation, language proficiency, and library services. Worse still, since 1996, funding growth for First Nations education has been capped at 2%, an amount that has been insufficient to keep pace with either inflation or the rapid increases in the Aboriginal student population. Meanwhile, between 1996 and 2006, funding to provincial and territorial school systems increased annually by 3.8%, almost double the increase for reserve schools. The underfunding of reserve schools likely violates treaty promises about education and makes it very difficult to overcome the education and consequential income gaps. In many cases, the fees that First Nations are charged when they send their children to provincial schools are higher than the amount of funding they received from Canada per student. Calls to Action Number 8. We call upon the federal government to eliminate the discrepancy in federal education funding for First Nations children being educated on reserved and those in First Nations children being educated off reserves. Number nine, we call upon the federal government to repair and publish annual reports comparing funding for the education of First Nations children on and off reserves, as well as education and income attainments of Aboriginal peoples in Canada compared with non-Aboriginal people. Education reform. Since 2011, three major reports on First Nations education have concluded that the status quo was unacceptable and that there is a need for a complete restructuring based on principles of self-government, a culturally relevant curriculum, and stable funding. All three reports agree that Aboriginal peoples themselves must lead and control the process of change. In October 2013, the government released the text of the proposed Nations Education Act. The bill itself provided no guarantee of increased or stable funding of First Nations schools, leaving such matters to be resolved through regulations, with no assurance of equity in the distribution of resources to educate First Nations children in First Nations schools or in provincial schools. In February 2014, the Government of Canada and the Assembly of First Nations announced an agreement on a new basis for First Nations education reform and legislation. The agreement called for over $2 billion in new funding to reserve schools and replaced the 2% cap on annual increases with a 4.5% annual increase and $1.25 billion from 2016 to 2017 to 2018 and 2019. However, after opposition from Aboriginal leaders, the proposed legislation was put on hold, pending agreement on the principles for a new act. 
Based on all that was heard from thousands of former students and family members throughout the country, the Commission is convinced that such an act must recognize the importance of education in strengthening the cultural identity of Aboriginal people, providing a better basis for success. Albert Marshall, a former student of the Shubenacadie Residential School in Nova Scotia, made this point forcefully to the Commission. The current education system has been designed to completely eradicate who I am and to kill that Indian Mi'kmaq spirit that's in me. But I do know I need knowledge and I need education. The kind of education I need has to be reflective of who I am as a Mi'kmaq. And the knowledge that I get that I will receive, I have a responsibility with that knowledge to pass it down so others will benefit from it. The kind of legacy that I want to leave my children in future generations of one, is one of which they will be able to excel. They will be able to compete without having to worry about is the education system going to further eradicate themselves. Call to action number 10. We call upon the federal government to draft new Aboriginal education legislation with the full participation and informed consent of Aboriginal peoples. The new legislation would include a commitment to sufficient funding and would incorporate the following principles. Providing sufficient funding to close identified educational achievement gaps within one generation. Improving education attainment levels and success rates. Developing culturally appropriate curricula. Protecting the rights to Aboriginal languages, including the teaching of Aboriginal languages as credit courses. Enabling parental and community responsibility control. Accountability, similar to what parents enjoy in public school systems. Enabling parents to fully participate in the education of their children respecting and honoring treaty relationships, Métis and Inuit education. Provincial and territorial schools are the only option for Métis students, other Aboriginal children without recognized status, and those First Nation and Inuit children who do not live on reserves or who do live on reserves but attend provincial schools. Their educational outcomes are not significantly better than those who attend First Nation schools on reserves or in their home communities. Jurisdictional disputes between the federal and provincial governments over responsibility for Métis education continue to be a major obstacle to ensuring that Métis people have control over the education of their young people. The Métis remain without recognized jurisdiction and authority, even though they have equal protection under Section 35 of the Constitution. The result is that Métis children generally are educated in public or Catholic school systems in which school boards are not specifically held accountable for the education needs of Métis children. The Commission believes all levels of government should consult with Métis parents, communities, and national organizations to provide Métis-specific educational programming. Inuit students face one of the largest gaps in terms of educational attainment. A disproportionately high number of Northern parents are residential school survivors or intergenerational survivors. Inuit are among Canada's youngest citizens, with a median age of 22. In response to the intense needs of its young population, Inuit peoples have been leading the way to dramatic change. Inuit education is on the cusp of significant transformation, with some of the most promising models for self-governing education coming out of the northern communities. These changes have not been without obstacles. Some regions have a greater capacity to develop the necessary resources than others. A shortage of bilingual educators is one of the greatest barriers to expanding bilingual education in Inuit schools. There is also a lack of teaching and reading materials in Inuit languages. Another major problem is the lack of supports, both within and outside the education system, that are necessary to ensure student success. Inuit educators have long recognized that it is important to begin working with children as early as possible, but the North lacks good quality daycare and preschool spaces. Post-secondary education. To help close the income and employment gap, Aboriginal people need increased access to post-secondary education. Only 8.7% of First Nations people, 5.1% of Inuit, and 11.7% of Métis have a university degree, according to the 2011 census. 
The Federal Auditor General has commented, In 2004, we noted that at existing rates, it would take 28 years for First Nations communities to reach the national average. More recent trends suggest that the time needed may still be longer. The barriers to post-secondary education have had profound effects. Geraldine Bob attended residential school at Kamloops, British Columbia. She told the commission at a community hearing in Fort Simpson, Northwest Territories, that poor education and negative experiences at residential school delayed her attendance at university and her entry into the workforce as a teacher. She suggested that, The residential school system owes me for those lost years. You know, I lost my retirement. I have to keep working. I don't have a good retirement fund because it was so late when I went to school. And I've proven that I can go to university and be successful as a teacher. So that little tiny bit of common experience payment doesn't compensate for all of that loss. Almost no one with some university or college education who spoke to the commission had been able to obtain that education directly after high school. Most, like Geraldine Bob, had lost years to the time it took them to heal enough to even consider the possibility of upgrading their schooling. If access to post-secondary education is to be improved, increasing the rates of secondary school completion is an important step. But even those who qualify for a university program, there are significant obstacles. Federal funding for post-secondary education suffers from the same 2% funding cap that has been imposed on all elementary and secondary schools since 1996. The First Nations Education Council estimates that there is a backlog of over 10,000 First Nations students waiting for post-secondary funding, with an additional $234 million required to erase that backlog and meet current demands. The financial barriers and other difficulties that Aboriginal people face in attending post-secondary institutions deprive the Canadian workforce of the social workers, teachers, healthcare workers, tradespeople, legal professionals, and others who can address the legacy of residential schools. Call to action number 11. We call upon the federal government to provide adequate funding to end the backlog of First Nations students seeking post-secondary education. Early Childhood Education Programs Aboriginal families continue to suffer from a general lack of early childhood education programs. The Assembly of First Nations reported that, according to 2011 data, 78% of children up to the age of 5 have no access to licensed daycare, let alone to intensive early childhood programs. Such programs are vital to support the development of young children and, by extension, address some of the deficit in parenting skills that it is a legacy of residential schools. Call to action number 12. We call upon the federal, provincial, territorial, and Aboriginal governments to develop culturally appropriate early childhood education programs for Aboriginal families. To close the education and income gaps, there needs to be stable and adequate funding of Aboriginal education that takes into account the challenges of the legacy of residential schools, as well as other funding challenges faced by Aboriginal people. In addition to fair and adequate funding, there is also a need to maximize Aboriginal control over Aboriginal education and to facilitate instruction in Aboriginal cultures and languages. These educational measures will offer a realistic prospect of reconciliation on the basis of equality and respect. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering done by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music is done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com.